Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pilot Episodes. This is, what, what is this now, Episode 5? Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. It was somewhere like that. As always, I am joined by our three Top Guns. Big Tone, how are you? <laughs> Big Tone is here. <laughs> uh, Goddard's? Yeah, all present and correct. Been running about on some ships and been doing some F-35 stuff recently, so uh, Ooh, it's all been very interesting. Excellent. And fresh from, I think, Saudi Arabia is Mr. Mason. How are you, sir? Yeah, I don't know if I'm fresh, but I'm, I did come from Saudi Arabia, yeah. Yeah, it was good. I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? Very well. How was the weather? Weather was glorious. You, you can tell, I mean, the podcasters won't be able to see it, but... You know, my deep tan gives it away. You're slightly less white. Yeah, I'm just like on more blue. <laughs> well, when we were, we were last with you, we were going through our, our favourite aircraft to fly for the RAF. We got as far as the 70s, and then we realised we were talking for three and a half hours. So if you want to find out the lad's favourite uh, aircraft from the 70s and before that... Go listen to our back episodes. But I think we might pick up from where we were after I quiz Goddard a bit more about these ships. Yeah, so just yesterday, actually, with the RAF 100 years, um, one of the things they've done is a uh, what's termed the baton relay. And um, I just thought it was going to be uh, an old baton that I picked up. This thing has been and from the last couple of weeks um they actually went to some really interesting places you know down through uh biggin hill uh yes the day before yesterday they were at tangmere and went to the museum there um and then ran uh it through chichester got on a boat and mm-hmm. came into the uh, portsmouth naval base dockyard at which point i sprinted bravely into camera shot and uh picked up this baton which was actually flipping heavy and a brilliant <laughs> bit of an engineering uh, apparently the backstory is that um the chief of the air staff had done a dragon's den with uh, some of our apprentices and one of the team won and it is beautifully made um you know it's uh, the way it's put together and uh, it's got um, a bunch of lights around the bottom that, uh, that when it plugs into its little holder it lights up and that signifies the uh, the aircraft lost on the dambusters raid and there's uh, a bunch of other symbology in there there's a uh, um you know a be2 a uh, an f35 and How- a spitfire um, so a really good thing, and the team that had been running it, and part of the RAF orienteering team, um, a really bunch of in, uh, a good bunch of enthusiastic people, and we just um, 
met up with uh, some of the Navy yesterday and uh, run it around on board at uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth, which was very exciting, standing at the top of the ramp. Um, So, yeah, it was good. Excellent. Sorry, how big is this button? (laughs) Um, it's about two feet long, but weighs about three and a half tons. <laughs> it's made uh, of um, solid uranium. <laughs> I think it's white dwarf. <laughs> Depleted uranium, <laughs> lovely stuff. Uh, uh, and Parky, what have you been doing? Flying Spitfires or something equally as cool? Unfortunately not. The uh, head corn um, is still a bit soggy to land a Spitfire there. So they postponed all this week's and next week's flying uh, till later on in the summer. So I've been uh, busy playing with a motorbike. Hang on. So um, your practice to fly relies on the quality of the soil. Yeah, well, we could fly obviously off, uh, you know, tarmac, concrete runways, hard runways. But the grass ones, I mean, back in the day, they would have, I'm sure, operated from it. But it just digs in and then you end up damaging the runway because it gets all rutted and bumpy. So essentially, headcorn, nobody's flying there at the moment. So, um, yeah, just waiting for it to dry out. Yeah, I think it'll be another couple of weeks. It's traditionally sort of mid-April to May that uh, these places get good. Is it, Are all the aeroplanes based down there, Parky? No, they're at Duxford. But, yeah, I pick them up from there, then fly them down to uh, headcorn. So, yeah, just waiting for it but to did, dry did you not just take, Did you not just take them flying at uh, Duxford? Uh, we're not allowed to fly from Duxford. It's a different company. So our our bit is, uh, is out of headcorn. Politics. So this is getting awkward. <laughs> Slightly awkward conversation. No. Why not, <laughs> Come on, tell us, mate. What's going on? He's, no, do, he's doing a cat symbol across his throat. I think yeah. that means that what we... What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> turn the engine off. Who's annoying who, Parky? Come on, tell us. It's just, you know, that's where we fly from. That's it. There's no more to say, I'm afraid. Ah, interesting, interesting. <laughs> well, it's, it is very reassuring to know that um, Warbird, fly, uh, uh, Warbird flyers have the same parameters as amateur rugby clubs. So that's uh, that, <laughs> that's all very nice. <laughs> uh, right, so where where did we leave off? I'm sure you boys were talking about Phantoms and Harriers, and we got to the, got got to the end of the seventies, and we thought don't we'd... mention Harriers again, JB. We've just been, they've been talking about it for the last week. Exactly. Wonderful airplane. Well, Wonderful airplane. I imagine we're going to be talking about this segment, although it's a very narrow time frame, uh, a lot more because, of course, this is when you boys started to fly. The seventies, Parky, Parky, the eighties, the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was passenger in some planes in the seventies, but uh, yeah, I guess I mean, even even Dunk would have been aware of aviation in the seventies. But I definitely, I was watching, you know, going to air shows and. Uh, yeah, I'm watching all the, the cool jets that were uh, flying around in the 70s. But 80s was when I actually joined. I like that officially to be mentioned. So <laughs> uh, Early 80s? Fairly early. So when was the first time you got uh, you got into the cockpit of an aircraft and flew it, flew it yourself then, Parky? Uh, 82. A mighty tomahawk. Piper tomahawk. That they let He's me lying. He hasn't done it yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and what's what's that aircraft like? Oh, it's just a little, you know. It was a little civilian light aircraft, you know, single engine. Instructor beside me, he uh, showed me how to do it. <laughs> and then, it, it, it was kind of weird. I was a I was a little cadet, and I, I remember rocking up on the I guess on the Monday, and on the Friday I went solo. 
And really? To be honest, I don't think I could even spell Tomahawk by then, but they let me off on my own, so it's pretty you cool. You still can't spell Tomahawk. <laughs> is it? Is it because you look 74 then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't moisturise like you. <laughs> you talked to on day one of the Harrier OCU. Yeah. That and a number of other things, yeah. So I guess it's only fair to start off with Porky then. Okay, well, now this is an interesting one. So I've been putting some thought to this, and I think if we're talking classic aircraft, I think Goddard and me are going to mention the same jet. But I don't know if he's going to mention it in the 70s or the 80s, you see. He first <laughs> flew in the 70s. Is it the Harrier? No, it's not the Harrier, don't know. No. <laughs> is it the it's... Tornado? Negative. Oh. And in fact, um, let's, we may as well bang on about it now because it's kind of that era. So, Paul, what, what, what was your 70s or 80s jet going to be? My 70s jet was going to be the Jaguar. Wow. Same. Me and Goddard so, on the same what, wavelength. So, right, I, what was your 80s jet going to be? Harriet. Um, I was going <laughs> to go with Tornado, but, but I did have honourable mention in brackets F-16 for the 70s. The trouble is, boys, is that, you know, you get to this sort of... So I, I think, you know, the difference between last week's or the last podcast that we did and, and this one is that we're now going into an era, and it, it really is that sort of cut off into the 70s, isn't it, where you go from there being uh, an extraordinary amount of aeroplanes being uh, designed, produced, um, at, at, to all of these companies being amalgamated into, you know, so there's a much smaller number of companies, a much smaller number of aircraft that come out. So actually, you know, if we limit ourselves to British aircraft, then 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, there's actually only only a few that we can we yeah. can choose from. So I think, you know, as you say, much like I sort of snuck the SR71 in there last time, that uh, F16 has got to has got to go in somewhere. Now, why would you pick the Jaguar? Because I always think of it as a little bit small, a little bit underpowered, sort of a semi-trainer type jet. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, you're not inspiring <laughs> me. But it's just... Uh, Come on, ju- justify the Jag. Well, no, I was, I was picking it because, um, you know, in terms of Royal Air Force service... Mm-hmm. Oh, God, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a brilliant way to end! He's fallen over. Oh, it's all right. He'll come back in a minute. He's got, in terms of Royal Air Force service, it was rubbish. What? No, he's gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's had enough. I'll carry on. In terms of Royal Air Force service, <laughs> it did a remarkable job. I mean, uh, I mean, it was a French Anglo. Um, uh, it was a consortium. Joint... Consortium. Yeah. Well done, Parky. That is a good word for you. Well done, mate. Uh, and the. Um, uh, and, and I, do you know what? The reason why I, I picked it was I just thought it looked like a cool aeroplane. Out of all of the aircraft at the time, you know, A, it was single seat, and B, I just thought it it, it looked great, you know, in terms of, okay, it didn't have the best performance, but um, it seemed like, you know, it was a cool bunch of, of blokes that, that flew it. Um, they seemed like a fairly laid-back uh, bunch, but professional at the same time. So they had a really good reputation. Um, and the aircraft, they went to some cool places. They went over to Norway and did all this, the Arctic stuff. So for me, when I was going through, I thought that would be a great place to go. So that's why I've sort of got a, a, a special place um, in my heart for it. Okay. Yeah. So is it fair to say 
built built by the British, sabotaged by the French. <laughs> well, it's uh, I don't know. You know, the fact is that there was all sorts of handling foibles to it. Apparently, you know, they said that you you couldn't sort of roll and pull at the same time. You had to do one and then the other, and there was these horrendous stories of it departing um, at uh, at low level. That's um, that's when interesting. Sort of rolled and pulled. So you know, I think you know, as you rightly said, JB, I think initially that, that it was going to be a training aircraft. Um, that was that was the intent for it, um, and then they realised, oh, actually, this is a little bit tasty for uh, for, for for training people. It's got too many vices. Um, so we'll put some bigger engines in it. And uh, oh, he's back. Goddard is back. Um, I've filled in for you, mate. No one's noticed that you've got. I think I think it's big problem. And it, and Dunk's right. You know, you talk to the boys. It, it definitely could be a handful to fly. You know, especially near to the edge of its you know uh, alpha. You know, its limit. If you're manoeuvring it hard. But it was always. And we used to take a mick out the boys. It was just a bit gutless. You know, and actually that made it probably even more difficult to, to handle you know because you know it got heavier without a doubt as it's as it uh, you know got older and more stuff was thrown on it and, and uh, you know it was definitely well we used to say to Mickey anyway it was it used to get airborne with the curvature of the earth etc and you, you watch the boys at Joy O'Connor when I was on the F3 by then I guess the Harriers were out there but you know it was a hot day watching a Jag get airborne and it was shocking how little it climbed at the end of the runway. Really? Didn't they used to go under the railway bridge? <laughs> so, what would you use a Jag for that you couldn't use a Tornado for or a Harrier for? What was it good at? Done. There's a question. I'm going to have to do the Basil 40 faint. <laughs> but again, what was it good at? Well, it could carry a bomb or a wrecking <laughs> ball. <laughs> Uh, it was good at going away to some cool places and finding some great bars. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. But the long, yeah, short of it. But but in fairness, so is EasyJet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not well, to say that EasyJet can carry more than the Jaguar. JB, stop asking these awkward questions. Uh, well, uh, look, I only, I only brought it so we could actually tell stories about the Jaguar. Go for it. Well, no, no. I, you know, I think you've been talking about it already in in terms of curvature of the Earth to get it airborne. The uh, the fact that they carry a bomb or a targeting pod, or uh, there'll be loads of Jaguar people that can write in now and absolutely crucify us. So, um, and and I did hear one of the guys once when he was um, showing a couple of people around in Jag. Uh, I think we were out in Turkey, mm-hmm. and uh, he said the cockpit looks very much like someone just painted it in glue and threw the switches in. <laughs> Uh, tell me this why is it important for an aircraft to be able to roll and pull at the same time it's just in terms of its handling you know so if you want to uh turn and climb at the same time you know that's a fairly it's uh it's not much to ask really you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like driving your car and be able to turn and accelerate yeah exactly yeah so you do one or the other so so you know um, limiting it in that way was quite uh, was quite something, to be honest. So I'm trying to work that out because aren't you almost doing? How if you're rolling and climbing, you're not using at least some of the same mechanics there. So what they would do, um, you know, so if you wanted to to turn and climb at the same time, yeah, you know, in in an aeroplane that didn't have the vices of a Jaguar, 
you'd put the roll in, so you'd be putting left, let's say we were going left, but you're putting left stick in whilst pulling back so that the you're, you're using the elevators to climb and the ailerons to roll. You do both at the same time, so you've got a, you know, a climbing left turn. And uh, so, uh, but if you uh, if you have to uh, roll first and then pull, otherwise the thing departs, it's a fairly... <laughs> it's a fairly big design flaw, to be honest. So, when you say depart, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, good point. Uh, it's depart from controlled flight. So, uh, effectively, <laughs> um, you know, if you're sort of if you're driving your car and it, it you know, it's a bit icy mm-hmm. and you feel the back end go. Yeah, you, you, that's it. Effectively, what departing is you, you've lost control of the car uh. and you have to do a certain. You have to put the controls in a certain way to get the to get it back again, and it's the same sort of in an aeroplane. So, it's now on its own. It's doing its own thing, and uh, and you have to try and control it before it hits the ground. <laughs> Interesting. So, how do you do that? Generally, you unload. So you've probably nine times out of ten you've pulled too hard, and or done something else, and uh, so you high speed stalled. It, you know. If, if you understand that one, JB. I, I, but essentially, if just you push the stick forward, unload, so you're not pulling anymore. You're trying to get, you know, just get to lift back on the wings, essentially. And uh, and hopefully she'll, uh, she'll fly again. Sounds pretty tasty. Or t- she hit the ground. One <laughs> yeah. the Sounds pretty tasty. So I, I assume that these pilots and the Jaguars needed to operate at a certain level just for safety. I think the boys just got used to it and they would be very, you know, natural, probably not even thinking about it, you know, flying the, the jet aggressively at low level. And, you know, I remember doing Jagger Phil when the boys were down at 100 foot, you know, in the um, the low flying system. And, uh, they, you know, they were very impressive. They, it was, uh, as an air defender, we would do, you know, what we call affiliation training. So we would be the uh, the fighters essentially. And, you know, it literally would be the po- the programmers would phone around the boys, you know, phone the Harrier squadrons, the, the Jack squadrons, Buccaneer squadrons and go, any of you up for some trade? And then we'd meet them somewhere, you know, essentially normally over land and we'd try and shoot them down and they'd try and avoid us. So we were a, a realistic air threat against them. Um, and the, the Jags were difficult boys to shoot down. They had a very good radar warner. So if they got a sniff of our, our radars, It'll get a bit technical now, but they would notch to get out of our velocity, our Doppler, so we couldn't see them at low level. And they were just, they were just very good at uh, at um, uh, the whole way of avoiding the air defence threat. And uh, yeah, they, they were pretty good. And you know, again, operating down at 100 foot single seat in a jet that was, you know, had its its nuances and difficult to fly at times. It was just a very impressive uh, overall package, I guess. I think that's exactly the point, is that um, we ended up squeezing an awful lot out of that aeroplane. I mean, it went all the way until, I can't remember, about 2007 or something like that, 2008. Yeah, The 70s aeroplane that was a trainer that didn't carry a huge amount, but, you know, did an awful lot in operations. When I flew in Northern Watch, um, you know, the Jaguar was out there taking some pretty good recce photographs. Um, They were pretty laden up, and they're right on the edge of that flying envelope. So they used to do this thing called tobogganing, which, because they didn't have enough power in the engines, and they used to use this, um, there was a couple of switches. All of this is hearsay. I've spoken and flown with a lot of Jaguar pilots, but uh, these two switches called part throttle reheat. So it used to, you know, normally on your in your throttles, there's a, a gate, you know, so a, a couple of ball bearings that you have to push through. 
Um, and that's what turns, that's what lights the afterburners. Whereas they would hit these switches and it would turn the afterburner on early. So, you know, they had more use of the afterburner to give them more power. But even in that, in that situation, um, given the operational fits they were flying in, they used to have to point downhill in order to get enough flying speed over the wings in, to be able to maneuver the aeroplane and actually get into the basket. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, so, uh, that's quite impressive. And, that, and that's why I think it's, uh, it's definitely worth a mention because the RAF got so much out of that aeroplane that you wouldn't have expected, you know, all the way to the end. It, it was pretty capable, but I think that the guys and girls who flew it were, uh, you know, were, were highly capable, as Parky said. Um, and, you know, unlike the Typhoon or the F-35 or the jets that we're flying these days that are easy to fly, you're nowhere near the edges of the envelope um, if you don't need to be, and it's essentially idiot-free flying. Um, these guys had to be on their guard the whole time because you imagine a hundred foot when Parky rolls in behind you and you turn and pull, if you get a bit overzealous and that thing can fall out the sky. Um, so, what did uh, you call it? Yeah. Idiot-free flying? Yeah, it's supposed to be carefree, but I always call it idiot-free. <laughs> I'm not sure that applies to any of us. <laughs> <laughs> or all of us. So, I mean, to me, that just sounds like really good airmanship rather than anything else. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but, you know, very much like the aeroplanes of the 40, well, up until that point, up until fly-by-wire came in, um, people were operating on the, uh, you know, the edge of the envelope an awful lot of the time and had to be careful, as Parky and Duncan said, you know, not rolling and pulling at the same time. Um, and just... Actually, who flew the Jaguar, who, um, I, I, I shan't name him clearly, but... Um, I think he ejected three times, twice of which was in combat with a bit of rolling and pulling and lost the aeroplane, <laughs> had, to, had to eject. Wow. You know, so, uh, it is a different era, really, um, from, from where we were. And that's not that long ago, 15, 20 years ago, that we were I, there. I remember some mate saying he was sort of wanting to roll left and the thing just tucked, this is at low level, and rolled right and did a 270. So he came out that way, sort of essentially did a derry, rolled underneath. At ultra low level, like, oh, that was lucky. <laughs> and carried on, but yeah, clearly a bit of a handful. Um, now, just going to take you off on a bit of a tangent because I heard a story on a, on a rival podcast, um, and I was just wondering if you guys had heard any, any, uh, anything like this. The thought came from when Porky said the Jaguar had a good uh, radar warning. Do you know how the F fours over Vietnam? detected um so soviet missiles or vietnamese missiles i should say well i mean they would have vietnamese sams yeah it was it's to do with radar warning do do you have uh, do you have any idea are you gonna tell us i am they were go on jb they were instructed this is apparently this is absolutely true they were instructed to go down to the local hardware store and buy a police raid warning detector and strap that into their cockpit. And that's the only warning that they had of missiles. And apparently this, this is what the F-4 crews had to do. They had to get ra- get radar, radar detectors because the F-4 didn't have it. Who'd have thought? Yeah, I know. That, I thought that's what the bloke in the back was for in terms of looking out and screaming at you when uh, when a large telegraph pole got fired at the aeroplane. Yeah. Well, I guess if you if you can see it, you don't have a problem. Anyway... Enough of my useless stories. Um, has anyone got any final thoughts on the um, the venerable Jaguar? It's good. 
Or at least the people who flew it were. <laughs> I think that's what... I, I think, from what you've told me, the most valuable part of the Jaguar was developing great airmen. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good summary, JB, which is why it definitely needs to be in there in terms of the 70s. It was it, it was a challenge. Parky, what were you going to talk about in the 70s? So I think then, because it was, I was a little bit like Dunk said, they kind of merge into one a bit. But the jet that, you know, I guess, first flew in the 70s, thinking 76, but that might be rubbish. No, probably is, probably before that, was the Tornado. And again, there's a jet that's... Um, you know, I flew the air defense variant and, you know, we just had a lot of banter. And I know you boys will be smirking about the F3 because, you know, it had its, um, as a fighter, I guess it had, it didn't have the agility and handling of a fighter. What was that? One of the best fighters of all time. That's why. <laughs> yeah. It was an interceptor more than an agile combat fighter aircraft. But, you know, it's certainly... You know, I mean, the, the boys, obviously, you know, they're doing ops at the moment in the jet, you know, the uh, the ground attack variant, mm. the GR4 now. But, you know, considering, you know, what are we, 2018 and 19, mid-70s, you know, and it came into service, I guess, at, towards the end of the 70s. You know, that was the that was the jet that I sort of learned and studied about when I was, you know, trying to dazzle the people at the interview to get into the Royal Air Force. And, uh, you know, and it was an impressive bit of kit, without a doubt, in terms of, you know, some of the stuff it could do. And I, I remember, you know, my first trip in the Tornado F3 and, it, you know, it was, it was the, <laughs> this is another strange one. It was the quietest jet I have ever flown. And again, <laughs> that's not a real sales pitch to fly the aircraft, but <laughs> it was utterly weird. You'd start the thing. What have you got and, to say about the F3? It was quiet. <laughs> It was ridiculous. What a true fighter pilot you are. But, but <laughs> you could fly supersonic at low level and it was ridiculously quiet. Whereas I'm guessing if you got to 300 in a Harrier, you couldn't hear yourself think. And Mate, 40 knots. There you go. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, in, in terms of talk about a slippery bit of machinery at low level, you know, with the wings back, it was where it was designed to sit, and uh, you know it would just cruise along. You know, it was definitely wasn't very agile, but you know, ground attack. It, it's it's just proved itself as an awesome bit of machinery, and it's you know been going for forty years. So again, it's a bit like the Jag. I think we've we've sort of made uh, you know an, an aircraft that had its limitations to a certain extent, and definitely with the Tornado F three, which was the air defence variant. We turned that aircraft, by the time it left service, it was good. You know, with the data link, it had a, an AMRAM, which was a, a very potent air-to-air -air missile. And uh, it was it was good. So, yeah, it definitely deserves uh, deserves a mention, I think, by us boys. I don't know what your thoughts are on the jet. Yeah, okay. I, was bringing, I was bringing it into the, into the 80s. That was my draft pick um, for then. You know, that was, uh, it was the brand new aeroplane when I was growing up in the, you know, late 70s, early 80s, the MRCA, the multi-role combat aircraft. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a bright new spangly thing. And, you know, having been the station commander up at Lossiemouth with a tornado squadron there, right, you know, and that is almost 40 years after it started, as you said, but, uh, you know, a bunch of massively capable guys. And I tell you, you know, so I've only flown in in a tornado twice. Uh, I've never flown an F3, um, but it was uh, when I was up at Lossiemouth, and 
it still absolutely amazed me in 2016 or 17, whenever it was, and we went off and did some low level across Scotland and uh, the the bat, the pilot that was flying, um, plugged in the train following radar. And I just brought my legs up to my chest almost in the cockpit as this thing then leapt down through the clouds into low level and followed this low level route in whatever ride it selected, sort of medium ride. And uh, I was essentially terrified all the way through, but then the more you think about that that technology is mid early 70s you know that stuff that was on tsr2 ended up on f111 um and you know in a world of uh, i'm not saying a world of health and safety but in a, in a world of looking at risk and judging risk and um you know the way we uh, we look at things these days to still be able to use that technology now which you know was a game changer in the in the gulf war when the guys were going in at night um, and look how long since 91 they've been in operations ever since. So I'm completely with, you know, an amazing workhorse backbone of the, uh, of the RAF. Um, and, uh, and there it was again last week in, uh, you know, front and center in terms of operations as well. My, uh, my experience of it is, uh, I held at St. Athen, uh, when I was a, a flying officer <clears throat> and I used to fly the, uh, the Hawk so that they'd used to deliver, the aircraft wherever they were going but sometimes they get to go and fly in the uh, in the back seat of the tornadoes with the test pilots and the tornado f3 as parky was saying you know the low level performance of it was just brilliant so with a, you know there was a clean airplane and uh, the pilot um, a guy called jerry margiotta said to me right um what we're going to do is i want you to time um each hundred knots that we accelerate we're going to go from 300 to 600 knots and i want you to time each hundred knots i was like okay no problem and so we started there we are at 300 knots at 250 feet and he plugs in the burners and it kicked you in the back i mean it was really impressive performance um and it took six seconds for the first hundred knots six seconds for the second hundred knots and six seconds for the third hundred knots it just did not let up it didn't you know, it didn't slow down in its acceleration at all. It took 18 seconds to go from 300 to 600 knots at low level in this machine. It was just awesome. So, yeah, you know, um, there's always uh, some banter between different air aircraft types, between those that fly the different types. But I think when you're looking at the, you know, the high end um, uh, of um, high performance aircraft, then uh, you, whichever one you look at, they've all got their uh, their um, uh, their positives. And certainly the F three, as Parky said, you know, was a, um, a, a capable aircraft uh, at the end of its life. It was certainly it could accelerate very fast at low level. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I I liked it as well. It was uh, certainly a good machine. Now, um, so, so go on. we've just slacked off the Jaguar. And said, you've just said the F3 is the world's greatest aeroplane. There's going to be a hit out on you as soon as this <laughs> podcast is posted. Uh, no, it was the world's greatest fighter, wasn't it? The F3. I think it's because Dunk was actually posted F3 from TAC Weapons, but bizarrely ended up on Harriers. This is a dirty little cool. secret. It is a filthy secret. <laughs> so I've got so many questions about the, tor the tornado. Because it's actually one of my favourite aircraft. I, I think it's a marvellous bit of kit. Um, first of all, 
there's a lot spoken about its low level performance um why is it good at low level stuff um I mean, what makes it different to just a very pow- just 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 a very powerful aircraft? How do you build an aircraft that is good at say low level, but maybe not so good at a higher level? I think the engines were optimized for low level, so it's. I, I think I'm right in saying it's the only triple stage jet engine that's ever been built. It so is. Is we we're getting geeky, but you have a low pressure and a high pressure. Uh, system in the aircraft and the tornado's got an intermediate one as well so you've got lots of of uh, fans that are squeezing the air and then they they, they blow it out and it, it's just the engine is optimized at low level so when you then turn that into a fighter it is without that i came from the phantom to the tornado mm-hmm. uh, and the, the f4 was just good at height it, you know you just didn't see the performance of the engine drop off as you went to the thin air up at height whereas you did in the f3 uh, and again, you know, when you started to turn, you know, it just didn't have the high performance of things like the Lightning and the Phantom. So you had this new aircraft coming in, and when you got up to thirty odd thousand feet, it wasn't as good. So that just gave it a bit of a bad rep for the mm. for the air defence uh, side of it. But it was good at what it was optimised for, and it was never really intended to be that. You know, having said that, I went Mach two in a tornado at height. You know, you could you could get it going. Um, but you couldn't really do a lot <laughs> of turning once you got there. Ah, so w- with the UK, um, I, I mean, as I understand it, uh, bombers used to go in at pretty high level, and then all all the new missiles came in, so then you had to go in at low level. For you guys um, doing the air defence stuff, did you just concentrate on low level and there was something else to deal with high level, or was that it? Were you guys responsible for everything? Yeah, yeah. So it just you know, it depends. You you would go on what you would call it CAP, a combat air patrol, and you'd be uh, you know essentially guarding, orbiting, you know, as either a two ship, a four ship uh, of aircraft, and then um, you'd use your own radar, or if you had ground based radar, ship based, or an AWACS, an airborne radar, that would obviously give you a better range for detection, and you'd basically do an intercept onto the aircraft, and if they were at forty thousand feet, you'd if it was interception and you weren't shooting them, you were just, you know, flying alongside them, you would you would intercept them there. You know, it's you would go where they were. If you were shooting at them, simulated, you know, you'd fire your missiles and uh, and do tactics accordingly. But no, you know, you'd all, all heights. Excellent. So what was the, what's the most interesting thing you've... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You've intercepted. What, what have you seen up there? Ah, I mean, um, I, I've intercepted uh, a load of uh, bears. So Russian, big, four-engined um, bomber aircraft, but some of them are used in different roles, you know, for submarine, anti-submarine mm. stuff. But they're, they're uh, I think I've intercepted uh, eight bears in my <laughs> Air Force career. Um, and then, you know, on quick readiness alert, I don't know what, God, as if you've got, I've, uh, you know, the odd scramble against uh, airliners and uh, and light aircraft. In Croatia, in um, Bosnia, we were intercepting um, HIPS, which are helicopters, Serbian helicopters out there. So, uh, yeah, just various bits and bobs. Which one scares you the most? Because I can only imagine that would be airliners. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you're policing the skies, aren't you? And, you know, post 9-11, the, the world changed. You know, you, you, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was horrendous what happened. And, uh, and so, yeah, you know, you would, if, if an airliner wasn't behaving, wasn't on the right frequency, you know, you got called to cockpit, which was the first thing, or, or you'd be scrambled pretty quickly. And often they'd then check in on the radio, um, you know, but they were just late or something wasn't quite right. Mm. But yeah, it, you know, you, it, I would describe it as you're a bit of a hair trigger. You know, you would, you know, if in doubt, you would launch, launch the aircraft and see what was going on. Wow. And have you ever had an occasion where it's gone, it's gone as far as, well, you're in the sky, you're with the aircraft, and... There, there, there's still no communication or there's you know, there's still something a bit funny about it. The issues haven't been resolved. No, not, you know, in terms of the Russians, we would literally just police them. We would fly generally very close to them, you know, two aircraft, maybe one behind, one on the wing. And you just watch where they go. And, uh, you know, they would, you know, sometimes they would fly all the way down west of Ireland, sometimes they fly down the North Sea, you know, we'd then hand them over to maybe the Dutch F-16s would then intercept them and fly with them. But, you, you know, you're literally you're just policing them, JB, mm. just seeing where they go, because they're not talking to any air traffic control and they're, they're flying through, you know, routes that the airliners could fly. So, you know, you need to, to see what they're doing. Oh, that's interesting. So if they're not talking to air traffic control, potentially the only way people know they're there is you making everyone know that they know that they're there. Yeah, I mean, they, they'd be a blip on somebody's radar, I guess. But, um, yeah, you, you know, you need to see what they're doing. Ah. Uh, and last and last one for last one for you, and then everyone else just pile in. Um, when you went from tornado to typhoon, uh, was there a dramatic change in tactics because of the capabilities of the aircraft? Um, no, sort of, uh, I mentioned that the F3, you know, towards the end had, uh, the AMRAM. So essentially that's the same missile that the, um, Typhoon had. So the, the tactics would be pretty similar to that. You know, it, it was just, it would, you know, there were nuances to how you would skin the cat of the, uh, the actual intercept and doing it. But no, if you now probably, you know, you have a full ship of tornadoes or you have a full ship of F-16, a full ship of typhoons. I think they generally operate fairly similar. 
got us. You know, what was it like with the Americans on the F-16? Right, no, and so what we found was, um, you know, on the uh, when we stood up the first op squadron and typhoon and, and Parky was on the, uh, on the training unit, so taught us to fly, we went off and, and kind of, you know, developed more and more. The, the difference with typhoon was just the sheer performance of it. So where part, so what you'll always try and do is maximize the range of your long range missiles. So you give them as much kinetic energy and height as you possibly can. So it's all about speed uh, and height. But clearly you can do that with a typhoon. So those initial shots are so much further away. And also with the typhoon, when you then turn back around the corner, you don't fall out the sky like you do in a lot of other airplanes up at 40 or 50,000 feet. You can continue to turn up there. You can maintain energy up there and you're burning very little fuel as well. So um, we found we can stay up there quite a lot longer than other airplanes that are sort of, you know, almost leafing out of the sky. Um, you know, if you're if you're flying a sort of orbit, taking your shot and coming back around the corner and they're having to go low in order to maintain airspeed, we can maintain that altitude and we can outlast quite a lot of people just because of simple things like fuel burn um, and much more dangerous for them because we were fast, we were high. So um, the missiles that we had were um, essentially more capable because they had more energy um, in terms of the end game. So it, it did make a, 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 although the tactics were pretty much the same, it did make a hell of a difference. Um, and it's interesting, you know, so Typhoon was going to be my aeroplane of the uh, of the noughties. And where Dunk talks about that low-level acceleration, I, I will remember forever that first time I got into a Typhoon, which was like an F-16 on steroids, and doing the low-level Axel trip, which was, I can't remember, yeah. Parky, about two or something like that on yeah. the uh, jet may have been trip one. So you start at 250 feet over the sea and start at about 180 knots, and then just put the afterburners in and it was your head was pushed back in your seat. Your eyeballs are rolling up. Your socks are rolling down. And you were just gobsmacked at how quickly this thing got up to 600 knots. Um, you know, I'd love to have done a drag race in that thing against another airplane because you would have absolutely yeah. wasted anything in the sky. Wow. It, it, you're right. It was a dunk. Did we do? I, I, we did a trip together in a two seater. We must have plugged the burners in at low level, dunk, and uh, and showed you that. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it, it is phenomenal, as um, as God says. And you know, the, the weird thing, I remember just, I, I think it's just under five seconds per hundred knots, you know, but it's it's Formula One esque acceleration, which a Formula One car would do, you know, between. 20 and 120 is that sort of speed where it's but it just like dunk said with the tornado it just doesn't stop the acceleration and the, the thing that's and and it, again this is with all the jets i've done when you get that acceleration you put the reheat in it's absolutely brilliant but you get it up to about sort of 650 so you're really trucking at this stage at low level and the thing that i think amazes people is when you then just go into dry power so you're not even going idle power you just come out of reheat and the the typhoon has got you know digital engine control units so because you're going so fast even if you selected idle power it wouldn't give it to you because that wouldn't be good for the engine so you're still producing a fair bit of power in the dry range we call it you're not in reheat but that lack of thrust just coming out of reheat it's like hitting a brick wall the deceleration because obviously the drag at 650 miles an hour you know it is ridiculous and you do, you get thrown forward in your straps, don't you, when you just come out of reheat of that. And it's it's brutal. Well, I'm going to add, 
I'm going to add. Uh, I'm going to add to that and say, Parky, that was was absolutely phenomenal. Um, now, nineties. There's not really much going on, is there? We're, we're scratching our brains a bit. Well, there, there, there was. It's just that the aeroplanes were all the same as they were in the eighties and the seventies, because they were waiting for the typhoon to come in in the UK anyway. Uh, no, that's why. That's why I'm going for because it was the Harrier. The next generation of Harrier came in the '90s. Parky, don't do that. You know, you wish you could have flown it, and that was a fantastic aeroplane. You look at the Balkans and um, then into uh, you know into Afghanistan and all of that sort of stuff. Um, what an amazing bit of kit, a Duncan. Now, how how much? How much of the old Harrier was in the new Harrier? Are these completely new new, air, new aircraft, or the old airframes that they've updated? No, they were completely well, honest. They um, they took the you, you know, if I'm honest, the the Harrier that Parky spoke about in the last podcast, you know, it was it, I think we said then, you know, it was a thing of genius in terms of design, in terms of um, it being um, just a, um, a an amazing bit of kit. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the thing about um, British designers, and it's always been the way, and all of us that have flown Spitfires, you know, you kind of look at it, you go, why Why would you design the cockpit like that? And it was the same when they designed that Harrier, um, that, you know, the Harrier GR1 uh, up to GR3. But so the Americans thought that is a, an exceptional bit of engineering. And what they did is they took it and the Americans are able to, the way that they design their aeroplanes, um, it, it everything sits in the right place. It, it's where you want it to be and it works very nicely. So they took this amazing uh, bit of uh, engineering and they Americanized it and out came the, uh, the Harrier GR5. Um, and it was just a step change in in that aeroplane. In it's now a glass cockpit machine. It's right up to date. They've put a bubble canopy on it to, uh, you know, to increase the visibility that you've got out of the aeroplane. Everything about it then was, uh, you know, was stepped up. It was like a Harrier GR3 on speed, effectively. So, um, to answer your question, although it kind of looked relatively similar, it really was a completely different aeroplane but utilizing the same kind of engineering for the the v-stall you know the vertical takeoff and landing part of the aircraft now i i'm so glad you said that because this is the question i often ask myself when i watch documentaries on aircraft or you know anything like that and it's the crew experience i remember watching a program about the vulcan and they were saying just you know it's a great aircraft it it looks fantastic it drops bombs well blah 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 it was horrible to sit in i thought well why it's a big aircraft how why is the pilot experience so low down on well so so down on the priority list at, at least on british aircraft I, I guess because the the pilot was the last thing they were thinking of really you know it was all about aerodynamics it was um it was all about um stuffing capability or avionics or all of those sorts of things i know you know probably the first thing they did was draw a big cockpit with a seat in but as ejection seats came in as well, um, there's only so much comfort you can build into those. I mean, as it is over the last few years, they've got more and more comfortable. Um, oddly enough, I found the F-16 with its raked back seat the most uncomfortable. Um, you would have thought it'd be a nice comfy armchair, but you spent most of your time sitting up because it went back too far, which put a strain on your lower back when you were pulling all of that cheese. So 
you know, a lot of people flew with rolled up helmet bags wedged behind really? their lower back. Yeah. Um, the so, idea wasn't it, God, as uh, you know, when I was a boy and reading about F-16, that was one of the sort of anti-G capabilities of it was that they 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 put the seat so far laid back to try and decrease the heart to brain distance. That, that's what I read. Was that? Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So the story goes, but some of the old and bold guys who did our ground school out in the States I asked the exact same question, you know, isn't that a marvel of engineering that you actually get whatever they say, you know, 1.3, 1.4 more G out of the aeroplane. And someone told me it was a load of old guff. What actually <laughs> happened is because they designed the aeroplane as it is, the, the, it's a lifting body design. You see an F-16, it's got tiny little wings, but it turns mm. like a dingbat. And that's an awful lot to do with the, the way that the shape of the fuselage is and the shape of the canopy. And when you look at it side on, you've got the engine intake that then comes out to a tiny little thin forward fuselage with that big bubble canopy. But apparently, the and I'm sure someone will tweet in and, and tell us whether this is actually true, but the only way they could get the seat in was to rake it backwards because uh, they couldn't put it upright ah. or, you know, at, at, at a, an upright standard. And then... They did discover that if you were sat back in it, then your heart to brain distance is that little bit lower. Therefore, um, you know, you can maybe sustain a little bit more G. But um, I think it was actually to do with the fact they couldn't fit it in there in the first place. So the, the Raptor doesn't have a, a rate back seat? No, not as far as I know. Um, okay. well, I great airplane. Bit, yeah. I mean, I always found the... I, I really found the F-16 comfortable, you know, for long sorties. I thought it was just brilliant, like in your favourite armchair. But I did, a load of the boys on the squadron had neck problems because, you know, your neck was at vertical and your, your spine was sort of uh, at 30 degrees. And that's that's what I found. out. I could tweak my neck so easily under 9G and it would hurt. I bet it would. But, mm, yeah, I guess, you know, it's one of those... Horses for courses, certain guys liked it. I, I love the, the F-16 with side stick, and, and I'm a massive fan of that. I, I found that such a comfortable way of flying. So, JB, most of the, the aircraft control with your right hand, generally how you fly it, you know, move it left, right, like in the Jag, only one at a time. But the stick's in the middle on most aircraft. Mm. And uh, F-16 and Raptor, it's on the right-hand side. So your throttle's on your left, your, your, your hand to fly is on the right. So it's just ridiculously comfortable way of flying I, I i mean i found about in about 20 probably five minutes it felt ridiculously natural flying with a side stick was that the same for you goddess yeah i thought exactly the same you know and less cluttered in the cockpit as well um he was about pack lunches yeah, yeah last time jb and uh, definitely get a much bigger pack lunch in the uh, yeah. in the viper because of the space but actually they expanded the instruments that were between your legs that are normally hidden by having a stick in the middle. Um, and it unsurprisingly, Lockheed Martin, because it's worked for them with F-22 and, you know, having taken on the general dynamics as was F-16, F-35 is a side stick controller and actually very much the same HOTAS, hands-on throttle and stick controls as, a, as an F-16 has. So it was a great little cockpit and it was a small cockpit, but a, you know, I always felt with an F-16, you kind of strapped it to you um, you know, a bit like some of the early marks of Spitfire where you're looking at this bubble canopy and just a fantastic aeroplane to fly and still coming off the production line now. That's incredible. 
you know, almost 5,000 uh, F-16s. Uh, a great iconic aeroplane. Well, and, uh, you know, that's why I had it as an honourable mention through 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now, you know, because they're still doing great stuff with it. What we um, now, like block, is it like block 50 or something ridiculous? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, they went all the way through, you know, early block and uh, I think I trained on the block 25 um, and block 30 and then went across to the block 50 um, which you know when you hear block and a number it's just when it was essentially when it rolled out of the factory and what widgets and, and uh, gadgets it had on board and uh, if you look at a, a US tail they'll always have the first two, it'll have two letters normally which denotes what um, uh, what wing it belongs to mm-hmm uh, so ours, Luke, were LF. Um, and then the numbers that you see, the first two numbers are normally when it was rolled out of the factory. Um, so, you know, the first ones I flew were 81, 82, 83, so they were early 80s. But then the latter ones that we were flying ashore were um, mid-90s, so wow. only, only a few years old. I never knew that. It, with the typhoon, you know, we've got Americans flying out typhoons, you know, here at Conisby and up at Lossiemouth. So... Um, it's uh, the exchange program. It was one of those things. I don't know if Dunkel say he didn't, but I know he would have wanted to get an exchange. Um, it, it was going through sort of my first tours. It was just the, the the absolute aim was to try and fly an exchange. So you literally go to another air force for three years and, and fly their jets, and you're just one of their pilots. And in hindsight, you know there, there was Mirages and F-18s, F-15s, you know all sorts of brilliant aircraft yeah but do you say i that was you want to go on exchange <laughs> just being argumentative <laughs> but i was so glad i got the f-16 and now sort of looking back to me it is just such an iconic jet and fabulous to fly brilliant uh, did any of you ever wish that you went on exchange or know anyone that went on exchange on exchange with the french air force because i think they're one of the few truly unique air, truly unique air forces that fly completely different types no i you know i've known a few guys who have been on exchange with the uh, with the french air force and in fact got one that i bumped into one just walking the dog at the weekend and uh who lives around the corner here um i, ha- I hadn't seen a typhoon guy as well and i think was the first guy to go and, and fly a rafale Ooh. from the the raf and he just had a fantastic time, you know, a a very similar ethos, you know, that sort of fighter pilot ethos that um, and squadron ethos that they've got. And, um, you know, sort of sovereign capabilities, exactly as you said, you know, it's, uh, you know, mirages, um, uh, Rafales, uh, uh, you know, home home built uh, indigenous aircraft that they've sold around the world in, in various different places as well. Are massively capable and it was always interesting flying with them because they had different capabilities you know their medium range missiles or their short range missiles were different to ours so you'd go off they tried different tactics you know initially before we had typhoon um even with typhoon it's always interesting going up and fighting doing basic fighter maneuvers with a uh, with a rafale but as a you know a big delta wing is a different kettle of fish to fight in air combat to some of the jets that we had at the time, or even a even an F-16. So um, yeah, definitely a, a, uh, a really interesting, good, always fun bunch. Actually, the when I uh, one of the last large exercises I did out in the states, 
there was um, French Air Force with Rafale, uh, the USAF had F-22 and F-35, and we had the Typhoons there. Um, they did normally, when you do these multinational exercises, that you do a, a some sort of evening social where the French had just flown in a about nine and a half tons of cheese and baguettes <laughs> um, and red wine and um, were singing songs. They were doing all this sort of stuff and were just utterly brilliant. You know, a really, really, really good bunch to be around. And actually, if you Google some of their highly illegal flying in um, North Africa and Djibouti, you can see some pretty damn skillful pilots um, with uh, what they got up to down there. You know, clearly we wouldn't do any of that sort of stuff, but um, uh them in North Africa um, have got up to all sorts of shenanigans. And uh, I would never condone it clearly, but uh, quite fun to watch on uh, on YouTube. Oh, excellent. Uh, Parky, did, in all your time in air defence, did you ever get to tangle with uh, with uh, with the French, Mirage 2000s, anything like that? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, an F3 versus a Mirage 2000 was uh, was not going to be pretty for, for us. Um, <laughs> you know, if it was intercept, but, uh, you know, and keeping them at long range, it was fine. But, you know, we, like Goddard says, basic fighter maneuvers, sometimes you'd, you know, you either got an ID at the merge, but you've got to go to the merge. And, and that that was just a bad fight. You know, we'd stay out of that one. But uh, I remember early doors doing a F-16, uh, just visual combat against the Mirage. And it was a good fight. The, the F-16, I think, was better. But, um, you know, it was a, it was a very potent jet. Um, yeah, you know, we, it, it's it's a real, you know, a, a very early trip I did in the F-16 was just a 1v1 against an F-15 from Bitburg at Ooh. the time. And, uh, you know, it was, I remember the briefing the night before with this uh, this Eagle driver and, you know, just literally just, just chatting. So, you know, what fit? And he, he was a centerline tank. So one one fuel tank, as I was in my F-16. And, you know, I, I sort of just let him out. And then we did 45 minutes of just visual dogfight and then sort of debrief together and again that was a great fight the f-16 definitely was you know i think was a um, a more potent basic fighter maneuver than the eagle i was offensive so he was defensive from a neutral position pretty much throughout the fight but he was really difficult to uh, to actually get a gun's kill on it was it was ridiculous but all various fights you know you, if you fought against the f-18 Boy, that thing could point its nose at you and bleed energy, you know, certainly compared to the F-16. So there was, you know, we I know all of us, we could just bang on for hours about, you know, basic fighting moves and, and ways that you would you would scrap with a different opponent. And it's probably the same if you're in a boxing ring with a, a you know, a big guy, a little guy, a fast guy. You know, you'd have to vary your fight. And it's a little bit the same depending on what aircraft you're you're with and you're up against. Ooh. Did you say all of us could bang on about basic fighting maneuvers? Fair point. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why Dunk's gone. I think he's left. <laughs> Poor Dunk. Uh, that was... yeah, and he didn't want to go on exchange either. Oh, dear. Dunky, don't look so sad. <laughs> well, Will you stop banging on about fighting? Oh, Dunk, you're going to have to download this podcast really to listen to it. Oh, really? Yeah, and then I got in a really good fight with another aeroplane. Right, OK. Then I got in another really good fight. Uh, I'm... I'm sorry, Dunk. Fascinating I'm... stuff. I'm sorry, Dunk. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to ruin your night even further because God has actually told me uh, a quick story. I can't remember if it was when we went for lunch or, or not. But didn't you fight an F-18 with a canopy painted on the bottom? Oh, yeah. 
That was the uh, that was a US Marine. We could do an entire podcast about BFM. In fact, I think we are doing an entire podcast. <laughs> about but um, yeah, the, the, do you remember you sent me a uh, you sent me a picture? Um, I think it was a Canadian Hornet that had a canopy painted underneath, and um, that was one of the most disorientating things I have uh, ever flown against because you know visual combat. It's you, you're absolutely reliant on your eyes, your skill, your experience. And when you say that, uh, when you see an airplane sort of turning on its side and you think it's pulling towards you, but actually it's pulling away, that split second might make you do something else, something completely different. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're uh, flying in, I'm, I've got hand, hands in the bar right now, you know, I'm doing a sort of scissors action with my hands. Um, you know, you don't realize how much of you know, the visual cues that you use in order to then react against that, you know, almost instantaneously, almost without thinking about it. So just a, just a simple thing, like a bit of camouflage and having a canopy on the bottom, um, completely put you off your stride. Parky, did you ever fight any of those Canadian Hornets like that? Mm, yeah, I did, but I just remember looking at the top of them, so I don't think I saw the underside. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, have we got any questions this week? God is. No, because clearly I forgot. I was doing my oh, research. And I uh, to put out episodes if there were any questions. Um, so uh, I think we'll uh, we'll reinstate that for next week. But I did get some good feedback, and chocolate hobnobs uh, are apparently a good choice. Um, plain digestive uh, chocolate biscuits uh, don't not so much. Um, okay. And there was a bit of banter about Parky being on the fence about any sort of biscuit whatsoever. I'm not a biscuit <laughs> person. <laughs> no, I, I I feel the same way about cake. I'm just not a cake person. Don't care. Don't care for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you a question, but you know what? I probably might leave it because we've got an we're an hour in. Poor Duncan isn't isn't feeling great. Isn't looking great. And uh, you, you, <laughs> you've covered you've covered quite a lot there. That's just how he looks normally. That is it. That's me looking pretty good actually. He's a yeah. sen- he's a sensitive soul. Uh, so, why don't you remind us, Godders, where we can find us on Twitter? At Pilot Episodes. Um, lots of people following us now, um, which is really good. And just send in your questions. Don't wait for me to ask. Just uh, fire them in there, uh, and we'll do our best. Fantastic. What we'll, are you try, boys... we'll try and get a backup so that uh, if Godfrey forgets, because he's too busy doing something else, one of, yeah. <laughs> one of the other of us. I put some pictures, actually, on... Um, on the Twitter feed as well, uh, particularly good one of one of Parky's F3 landings that uh, that I saw out in Saudi this week. <laughs> that was plain rude. Very good. <laughs> Which um, was good. What What are you boys up to uh, this uh, this week and next then? Got anything interesting upcoming? I'm not going to say anything because you're going to banter me about grass runways. So uh, exactly. yeah, it's soggy for Parky. <laughs> what are you, are you going to fly, Dunk? I'm going to America actually on Sunday, so I'm going to go uh, and see the boys over at Beaufort about yeah. QFIing on F35. So I uh, that'll be interesting. Sorry, what is QFIing? Qualified flying instructors. Ah, okay. Uh, so, uh, we'll say that. so going over to see those boys, and um, and well, I'm also you'll be interested in this, JB. Uh, on Friday, I'm going to go and see the uh, RAF. Uh, versus the Navy rugby at Twickenham. Oh damn! I'm going to be interviewing someone <laughs> about RF versus uh, versus Navy rugby, and I've completely forgot about it. 
Well, there you are. So what we can do, JB, is talk about it after we've beaten the Royal Navy because uh, the, Royal Af- the Royal Air Force beat the Army yeah. in 2019. Now, this so is... if we beat the Navy, we're into service champions. Now, this is like um, almost unheard of, is it not? Uh, well, I, I think we did it uh, two or three years ago, but the <clears throat> army are generally pretty pretty strong, especially when Sunisi Rock and Nguni is playing. Yeah, well, they've got their they've own... They've got a slightly bigger pool to pick from as well, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll be less well-briefed, though. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, funny enough, I'm going to that dunk as well, and, and next week um, you're clearly avoiding me because I'm coming up to Cranwell. Um, the commandant of the Central Flying School has invited me to be the guest of honour at the um, Qualified Flying Instructor course graduation. Oh, lovely. So I'm racking my brains for a speech to say very nice things about skull-crushing QFIs. <laughs> <laughs> but sadly, I'm not going to be there. Normally, I'm... Uh... I'm what's called the president of the mess committee, so I get to run the dining in night. And it's not because I'm good at it, it's because I keep screwing it up every time. So I keep making mistakes and say, right, you can do that again, Mason, until you get it right. So, uh, but so this is the first time that I uh, that I haven't uh, I haven't done it. But there's uh, it'll be a good do, no doubt, and uh, you, you'll enjoy it. It's generally uh, quite good fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Mention skull crusher in your speech. Oh, of course I will. Yeah. That's one oh, of and also, I'm so upset he's not there. Yeah. So essentially, JB, you know this: the first rule of 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 anything that involves some sort of dining in night or uh, social is be there or be talked about. Yes, quite. Uh, <laughs> uh, make sure you also mention the podcast to the room full of people. Oh yes, they're gonna love that. I'll, uh, <laughs> A bit I'll... of self promotion. <laughs> I do, yeah, definitely. All right, I'll I'll, uh, I'll write that down. That's straight in the speech. Uh, so, last thing before you go, give me a prediction for the uh, Navy Air Force score. Oh, that's going to be tricky because I'm going to see Mason there, and he's going to hold me right to that on uh, on Friday evening at the stoop. At the uh, uh, in fact, if there's anyone oh. listening, if it comes out in the next couple of days, tickets still available at the the, uh, the Harlequin Stoop. Um, so. Uh, um, When's it played? Friday? The Royal Navy website. Uh, is it played on Friday or Saturday, you say? Friday. Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Friday evening. Well, um, but I think it's going to be a really, really, really close game. And I know, you know, the Navy have got a, a reputation of being very, very good. They're, for them, it's a home game. Um uh, but obviously, you know, we're hoping that the RF are going to play their games there for the for the next five years. Until Get the... on with it. What's the score going to be? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to go because I want the Royal Air Force to win. But I'm going to go RAF by three. RAF by three. That's a tight game. Well, yeah. it'll, it'll, it well at least the stoop will get to watch some high some high quality rugby for the first time all season and that's the most important <laughs> thing isn't it do not mention that to any Holocrins fans maybe they can, maybe in fact maybe they'll come along they they will mass. they will come along just for the uh, just for the therapeutic break uh oh uh that's it we've got to recall the whole thing again right boys it's been an absolute pleasure we'll probably get together in two weeks two weeks time or so uh but until then from me dunk uh parky and godders goodbye see you yeah 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.